Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Tuesday, June 16th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Today, we're going to invite you into a conversation. We're going to discuss topics in the light of facts, hopefully remembering to check ourselves and understanding that we may not have all the answers, but we're going to try our darndest to discuss things in good faith and not bad faith. That's going to be important today. And we're going to do our best to keep you adequately informed. Yeah, we're going to try and not wreck ourselves, you know? We're going to we're gonna interface and try and be good faith about it. And we're not on the ivory tower. We don't know everything. Mm-hmm. We don't. We, we aren't the only perspective that matters. So... With that in mind, hey, Evan. Yeah, Joe. What do you want to talk about? Today, I want to talk about something that has been a subject of research and advocacy of mine for years at this point, and that is homelessness. And I specifically want to look at a homelessness initiative that has been gaining praise across the nation, and it's taking place in our own home state of Illinois, up in Rockford. In 2010, Rockford had a homeless population of about 700, and they decided that this was untenable and they wanted to do something about it. In 2014, the Obama administration created a program to try to end veterans' homelessness, and they did this by allowing cities like Rockford, who wanted to opt into the program, to offer vouchers for housing costs for veterans who were experiencing homelessness. Essentially, as long as they agreed to pay 30% of their income towards their rent, the rest would be be provided for by the voucher. In 2016, through utilization of this program, Rockford got its veteran homelessness rate down to what's called functional zero. And that means that they can't guarantee that on a given night there's not one veteran sleeping out on the street, but there's no one within the veteran community who constantly does not have a place to live. At this point, it worked so well within this population that city leaders decided that they wanted to think a little bit bigger, and they attempted to widen their scope to try to reduce homelessness for everyone within Rockford. Unfortunately, this was not provided for in the administration's homelessness plan, but this is when a couple of nonprofits stepped in, and those would be the Built for Zero nonprofit and Community Solutions. And by using resources from these groups, Rockford was able to get their chronic homelessness down to functional zero in 2018. And chronic homelessness is when individuals have been experiencing homelessness for a long period of time and they don't really have anywhere else to go. There's a specific definition, but for your purposes, uh, listeners, that's that's uh, fine. The goal in Rockford is to eliminate all homelessness, to get all homeless populations down to zero by the year 2021 so that there's never any person who has to sleep out on the street. How are they going to do that? 
Well, the biggest tool that these not-for-profits have introduced, the Built for Zero and Community Solutions, has been to stop people from becoming homeless in the first place. What they found through their research and their experience was that a huge driver in homelessness cases wasn't people who never had anywhere to go. It's people who had housing and then were evicted. So what happens basically is that if you are in a position where you don't think you're going to be able to make a rent payment or you're facing some sort of eviction, the non-for-profits act as an intermediary between tenants and landlords and offer additional resources in terms of mediation and at times rent assistance to smooth over the gap to make sure that people don't get evicted and don't end up homeless. And it's been, from what everyone can tell, a really strong initiative that has made a real tangible difference. And Rockford is on pace to eliminate homelessness by next year. Obviously, this is taking place just on a citywide level, but there is work being done in other locales on broader levels. And what I want to bring attention to is the state of Utah, a conservative state that found that they could actually save money by providing housing to individuals with no strings attached and no questions asked. In 2005, the state of Utah implemented a statewide housing first policy, whereby if you are in need of housing, you can apply through the state program and you will receive an apartment and optional access to counseling services absolutely free of charge. And this, in a 10-year period, reduced chronic homelessness in Utah by 90%. They couldn't get to functional zero like Rockford has been able to with key populations, but it's also a much wider swath of people that they're trying to serve. And a 90% reduction in just one decade is phenomenal. And here's how it works and is sold in a conservative municipality, or rather state, like Utah. Homelessness costs a lot of money. Unfortunately, homeless populations are often over-policed, which uses resources from police departments, jails, court systems, and they're also at a greater risk for ending up in the emergency room, and obviously they can't pay for their emergency room stays when they don't have any income. They also are at risk for experiencing difficulties from environmental factors such as even basic exposure. And so this is a drain on hospital resources. It turns out that the savings are in the tens of thousands of dollars per person per year to just pay for a cheap apartment instead of incurring court fees and hospital fees. And something we're going to talk about later is the concept of police reform, but it seems to me that this is a big way where we can start to reshift our budgetary priorities. If we're not spending money policing and processing and criminalizing homelessness, we can redirect those resources towards housing vouchers, towards intermediaries to interact with landlords, to 
paying rent outright and actually end up saving money while giving people basic human human dignity, protecting them on the most fundamental level. Joe, your thoughts? Oh, it's... You know, we've talked about preventative measures in like medicine before, but it, you know, you know, thinking about this makes me wonder if in all of our social ails that, you know, we believe society has at least some responsibility to bear, if, you know, there, there could be a lot from just preventing it from ever having to happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I like the the Rockford idea of, you know, a charity coming in to mediate to make sure someone just doesn't become homeless because I, you know, I've been thinking of, you know, an idea for a charity that's kind of in the you know police reform arena. But it's like, you know, there are a lot, there are some communities where police departments will really rag on people who have like a a broken taillight or something wrong with their car or something wrong with their hat, you know, something that's just kind of material and they can get dinged for it. But, you know, if they don't have the money to fix it, they don't have the money to pay the fines. And then they can just get into this hole where they have to keep paying and paying and it costs so much money. And then they get in trouble because they can't pay their debt. And, you know, it just ever increasing. Well, what if there was like a charity that helped poor people fix their taillights, you know, to just prevent someone incurring all these fees and all that stuff. Now, is it right for the municipality to do that? I don't think so necessarily, but it could be, you know, a workaround to help prevent people from getting into the situations where it's really expensive, like, you know, any preventative measure, like, you know, if you change your oil on your car, that's a whole lot cheaper than your engine blowing and having to get towed out on the road. You know, it's uh, and as you know, with homelessness or at least getting evicted, you know, it could come to that, you know, maybe they just are going through a rough couple months where they aren't able to pay rent and are and are otherwise financially able to cover it just for that small period of time so if there is like some sort of way to cover that gap they can prevent them from being homeless but if they have those rough couple months then get evicted then it becomes so much harder to bounce back from that whereas if they had just been able to stay at that apartment it can they can probably bounce back easier mm-hmm it's Rutger Bregman who says poverty is just a lack of cash, not a lack of character. And I think more and more when we are going out into the world and running policy experiments, we are finding that to be validated time and time again. When we give people the material means to support themselves, they do much better. There's a movie that I saw, it came out in 2018 called Leave No Trace, and it's about this man played by Ben Foster who is struggling with PTSD after his time in the army, and he wants to be homeless. He wants to live out in the 
national preserve, the, the national park. And even after people attempt to intervene and get him into housing, he just can't function that way and needs to be out in the world. And you're never going to be able to solve for someone like that. But those cases are so phenomenally rare that in the aggregate, they don't make an appreciable difference on the problems that we are trying to solve. If we are able to head off problems and do the basic things like give people housing, we start to see social benefits ripple out in a way that is both fiscally and humanitarianly responsible. And, you know, I would hedge to bet that most people in our audience, if they're if they were actually knew someone personally that they cared about who was on the verge of being homeless, you they would probably do something about it, um, you know, whatever within their means to be able to, you know, whether it's letting them sleep on their couch or trying to help them, you know, keep that lease on their apartment or something like that. And, you know, not everyone is fortunate to have people who are able to help them in their lives. So it just feels like um, as a society, we should be able to extend that deference and that help out to people regardless. I agree. Um, Because... Uh, you know, some of us are fortunate to have strong social ties and people who will, you know, have the means to help, but not everybody has that. Absolutely. And to the organizations like Built for Zero and Community Solutions and to the governments of Utah and Rockford who understand this, I commend you, and I hope that it will become a model for the rest of the nation to follow. Yep. Unfortunately, it just seems like it's uh, it's up to individual entities to decide whether they take it seriously or not. Yeah, and yeah. many don't. Yeah. Some people just see homelessness as you know something natural that happens, and. So, or, you know, it does seem to naturally happen, but that, you know, because it's natural, there's nothing you can do about it, which is not true. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very few parts of the human experience that we can't change. Joe, I, I don't know if you got this from somewhere or if it was just your own insight, but I know in the past you've told me it doesn't matter what policies you have. It doesn't matter what you do or where you are. People are going to have sex and people are going to drink and do drugs. That's yeah. <laughs> you, you you can't Yeah, that you can't change that. that. Yeah, those are uh Joe's two fundamental truths about the human condition and um or human populations, let's put it that way. So and it just made no sense for me to, you know, have your policy aims to just completely eliminating them because it will never happen. Mm-hmm. So I've, I found that very, that that's really stuck with me. And I think those two things you can't try to change, but pretty much everything else we have the ability through policy decisions to alter and homelessness as 
we've seen in Utah and in Rockford and uh, other municipalities like D.C. and Baltimore have had success and limited experiences with this. We really can make a difference when it comes to homelessness. I mean, (laughs) you know, you kind of said a version of this before, but homelessness is really just a lack of home, not anything else. Not, mm-hmm. you know, not a failure of character, not a failure of will. It's just not having a home. Yeah. And crazy. You give people somewhere to live. They're not homeless anymore. Mm-hmm. You could be, you know, broke, lazy, unmotivated, terrible person, but have a strong social network and boom, you're not homeless. There are people who are who work full time and are homeless because of various factors. There are children who are homeless. It is not again in the vast majority of cases, it's not any sort of character failure or lack of initiative or choice. It's just that circumstances have made it so that you do not have a stable place to lay your head. And we can fix that if we choose to by providing a bed and providing a space. Yeah. Yeah. So, Joe. Yes, Evan. What do you want to talk about? Well, since today, at least on the front and the back end, are kind of policy heavy, uh, getting to our roots, uh, I thought it would be nice to just explore ever so briefly federalism. And uh, if you can remember that word from when you took civics in freshman year of high school, federalism is the idea of, at least in the United States, of differing levels of government with differing jurisdictions. So on the top, there is the federal government, you know, the, the one, the holy, the one for everybody, you know, the government that everybody participates in. Big Papa government. Have, yeah, Papa government. Then you got your, uh, then you got your state governments. Then from, you know, and state governments have their own issues that they deal with. Then from there you have your municipal governments, your city governments, your county governments, you know, the, it, it just gets smaller, but each one has their own Uh, responsibilities and there are reasons for that and differing level differing issues have different needs at different levels of government so it would not make sense for a city government to provide national defense for itself like the cost of that would be astronomical and then you would have to have every city government doing their own and oh man you know with a big nation like this wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if it was all coordinated as one because we're all one unit so that's why national defense is done at the federal government level but then you know there are things like trash collection where it's like, well, where's the trash going to go? What, you know, constitutes as trash or recycling? And uh, how are we going to dispose of that? Now, that is handled oftentimes at the city level, which makes a whole lot more sense because 
it's something that's done at the local level. Like a federal response to trash collection would just kind of be overarching and way too broad for any specific local government um, because each local government has different things that they need to accomplish. Like, you know, it may not be the most environmental thing, but there are some communities that are small enough where individuals just burn their trash because there isn't any sort of collection means that can be done. So they just burn it. And that's at the individual government level to decide. So we have, and different issues exist at different levels. Um, So one thing that has been happening over the last while, we haven't talked about it a whole lot, but the coronavirus. The coronavirus is something that is big in scale. It doesn't matter about, like the virus doesn't care about state boundaries or city boundaries. But, um, but so because of that, it would make sense to treat that at a national level because it's happening everywhere. It happens to every population or could happen to every population. So it would make sense to have a response to that at a federal level, which would probably be more effective than what we have done, which is respond to it at a state level. Now, states have tools with which they can use to fight the coronavirus within their state. Because of free movement between the states and the nature of of the coronavirus, you can't effectively fight it as a state within a union. Um, There is a lot that can be done, and some states have handled it better than others, but it is not nearly as effective as what a federal response would be to the same issue. And then uh, later in the episode, we've already hinted at it, that we're going to talk about police reform. You know, police reform has gotten national attention and there has been some big calls for, you know, what to be done about it. But at a federal government level about the all you can do is affect kind of federal subsidies and you can maybe pass an overarching law on, you know, conduct. But I'm not even sure if that would be within the scope of. Uh, the Constitution and, you know, the powers that the federal legislative body has of what Congress has. But policing is administered at the smallest level of government. It's administered at the city and county level most of the time. I mean, there are state police forces and there is the FBI and federal agents, but they don't do the majority of the policing. This isn't an issue. I mean, at least when people talk about police reform, they're not really talking about, uh, you know, like federal police. But but it is held at a local level, which makes it hard for widespread return or widespread reform because you have to go to each municipality and fight for change and changes to the rules there instead of just lobbying one federal government to change what they're doing. So differing different policy spheres happen at different levels and for somewhat of a good reason, but it's just, 
important to know what level you're talking about. And then sometimes even there are some questions of whether a certain policy sphere belongs at the level it is. So there is some discussion in the zoning and urban planning community of whether zoning should be left up to local municipalities or be superseded by state zoning rules. It's a, uh, you know, it's question to be had. And, you know, there's, you know, there are fights between, you know, whether something's a state issue or a federal issue or a municipal issue, but there are differing levels and it can have effects on how policy is implemented and how you affect change in that. So that was just my spiel. Yeah. I generally believe that we can handle a lot more at the federal level than we currently choose to. I think people have this very defensive sense of, if you want to call it states' rights or what have you, the idea that just because someone, just just because you can do something at a state level means that you should absolutely take that authority when, even though there are times that it makes sense to have uniform standards across the nation. And I think policing can sometimes fall into that area where maybe it could stand to be a little bit more nationalized, at least in terms of standards as tied to federal and state funding. Sometimes it makes a lot of sense for things to be regulated at a state level or a multi-state level. Here's one for Jack. Only the states of Virginia and Maryland care about regulating crab fishing in the Chesapeake Bay, okay? Oklahomans, Iowans, Illinoisans don't need to have a say, so that can be taken care of on a state level. But when you start saying, well, we have the right to open our state to a deadly pandemic, we have the right to, uh, you know not uh, prosecute hate crimes, then you're getting into trickier waters and areas where I think things should be more nationalized and taken on a federal level. Well, yeah. And so when something is uh, moderated by the federal government, there are kind of two domains that I can think of just off the bat. And the classic one is for something that um, can happen in one state but affect another one. Um, so that is stuff like pollution uh, because, you know, pollution in one state can cause harm in the other and the other can have as many environmental regulations as they want. But if uh, the other state has a bunch of coal-fired power plants that are just spewing toxins that blow in the wind to the other state then, you know, what does it matter? Um, I mean, I, now I just thought of a third. There's also um, th anything that has to deal with uh, interstate travel is very classically federal. So most, uh, uh, you know, transportation regulations are at the federal level because, you know, you cross state lines and, you know, whoops, can't do this or that. I mean, there is intrastate travel, uh, you know, regulations, but that's just within the state. But then also this kind of third category is things that as a nation we've decided should be uniform. 
across the country, no matter what. So like civil rights legislation was something where, you know, who knows even if the whole nation at the time, but it was deemed that important enough that as a nation, it needs to be uniform across the country that uh, differing groups have basic civil liber- you know, liberties and rights. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting is that um, there is a fair amount of stuff that has to do with labor organizing that is mandated at the federal level. Individual states have some things within the purview that they are able to change, but uh, a fair amount of it is handled at the federal level because there was a time when it was deemed that these were rights that should be extended to everybody. So things can happen at the state level, but every once in a while there is a national consciousness that something needs to be elevated so that across the whole country, everybody has the same rules. Yes, I, I very much like that idea of playing by the same rules because at the end of the day, there are very few things that don't affect everyone or at least have the potential to affect everyone. The way I see it, state lines are really kind of arbitrary and it's a little silly that we have chopped up our country like this. I understand that it comes from a colonial era but to my way of thinking, that doesn't that that's not an intrinsic justification for why states need to maintain supreme autonomy. So we've got a main topic. Yes, we do. We're going to be talking about police reform slash police abolition. I know that there's a distinction between the two terms. We're going to kind of be covering all bases. And as a disclaimer for anyone who may be listening, I know that not everything that we discuss is going to be your preferred policy. Some of it might seem too radical. Some of it might seem woefully inadequate. But we're just going to try to discuss the pros and cons of some of these solutions that are being proposed And I would say I'm probably not ready to fully endorse anything just yet. We'll see where I end up by the end of this, if I can work myself up into something. But uh, this is an area where I have been doing a lot of learning over the last couple of weeks. I did not really know about a lot of these solutions. I police abolition. I didn't have a good idea of what that meant, and it seemed kind of fringe and and out there to me and now I'm listening and taking it more seriously so it's an area where I'm not fully decided but I think it's a place where we can have some really good dialogue so that's my disclaimer do you have anything to add before we jump into it um hmm I can't think of anything that's fine So the first thing that's being proposed that I want to discuss that's being pushed out into the ether, into the policy sphere, is this notion of eight can't wait. These are eight policy proposals that are supposedly evidence-based, and 
the statistic that I've heard is something to the effect of if a police precinct that doesn't have these eight things in place implements the eight solutions, then police brutality falls by 72% in those municipalities. So the first plank of eight can't wait is to ban chokeholds and strangleholds. This seems to be like a no-brainer. It seems like one of the things that should have been done already, but I guess that it is sort of an important baseline policy change to make, according to this idea. Yeah, as a bit of an expansion on that, um, you know, someone could retort kind of like, oh, are we just going to ban all police practices now or moves or whatever? And the reason why ban on chokehold is so why it's relevant and why specifically it's being asked for is because a chokehold as a, you know, when you do a chokehold to someone, you not only are choking them, but there is no way for them to uh, adequately resist to preserve their own life. Um, so if someone decides to go into a chokehold actually resisting or submitting, you know, can make it worse for the peace person being chokehold. There is no really correct way that is self-preserving to react to a chokehold. So it's best not to put people into that position where they can be killed and there is no way to really respond to it. Exactly. It came up on Ezra Klein last week talking with an expert on police reform, police abolition. And that's kind of the thing about the chokehold is that it's entirely on the mercy of the person performing the chokehold to stop. It's inherently self-reinforcing. Yeah. And if you do submit your body whether willingly or not, will start resisting, making it seem like you're trying to resist, even if that's just your body's natural reaction. So it's it's kind of a no win and it's not proper. It's not a proper move for police officers to be using unless they you know, it's like drawing a firearm on someone like The rule is supposed to be if you draw your weapon, you must intend to use it. And if you if you uh, if you do use it, you must intend to kill because at some point, what's the point of it? Mm -hmm. So if you're using a chokehold, it may as well be intending to kill. Yeah. And we can come back to chokeholds. I have a feeling that all of these solution potential ideas are going to be fairly integrated throughout everything because everything is kind of everything here. But the next part of eight can't wait is to require de-escalation that there needs to be a set of procedures in place that gives police a mandate to try and reduce tension in lieu of just pulling a weapon or using some other method of force. Uh, any uh, again yeah. it's just kind of yeah. i mean yeah <laughs> that i i would i would hope that's what they would be doing already but yeah um so 
Number three is to require a warning before shooting. Say, stop or I will shoot. Um, I think, you know, drawing the gun is probably a clear enough signal, but apparently that's something that they are advocating for. Yes. Number four, exhaust all alternatives before shooting. I guess this is somehow different from the de-escalation that... You know, you have to try everything in your arsenal even after things have escalated before you use your gun. Yeah, it may just kind of be a, you know, kind of double check, you know, de-escalate as much as possible. But then to reiterate, do everything you can before drawing your weapon. Mm hmm. Next is duty to intervene, essentially creating a framework where every officer is tasked with stopping their fellow officers if they see some misconduct happening. And this, I think, is really difficult due to certain dynamics. Not that it's not a good idea, but just that I don't know if it would ever be truly implemented, because especially when you think about what happened in the George Floyd case, the two officers who held Floyd down while Derek Chauvin knelt on his neck were trainees, and Chauvin was their training officer. And it, it just seems like we'll never be able to force people to... Maybe not that we won't be able to, but how do you criticize someone who's supposed to be teaching you how to do the job is, I think, a better way to put it. Yeah. Like maybe in this specific instance of George Floyd, that wouldn't have been a solution, but in others, it could be. Um, but then it, you also run into the, you know, kind of scenario where, I mean, it's like if you, you know, two parents trying to parent a child and, you know, one makes a proclamation and then the other goes, wait, no. Like, that kind of just ruins the effectiveness. Now, whether it's just or not, like, you know, it, it's it's a tricky space because if a police officer is already going into a scenario where they are going to take act or they deem it necessary to take actions that may end up killing someone, they're pretty well decided on that. And it's hard to take a situation that's as tense as that and be like, whoa, hold on there, bud. Mm -hmm. without seeming like you're not taking the situation seriously mm -hmm. or that um, you don't have your partner's back that um that i think would be difficult for officers to overcome psychologically in order to intervene yeah next is to ban shooting at moving vehicles i would guess that this is because if you're shooting at a moving target it's more likely that you will Miss that target and injure someone else would seem to be the rationale here. And again, it seems like that it makes sense. Yeah. And then also when you're shooting at a moving, if it gets to the point that you're shooting at a moving vehicle, one, you may not know who all is in that vehicle. Um, you know, if someone just takes off, you know, after a bad traffic stop, you know, there may be a child in there or something else, and it's not worth it to shoot at it to try and, you know, 
<laughs> potentially kill that one guy. But um, yeah, I think it would be good practice to not shoot at moving vehicles. Yeah. Next is to establish a use of force continuum. This again seems like another extension of the de-escalation and exhausting all alternatives. Essentially, there needs to be regulations in place whereby officers only have a specific set of circumstances where they can use force and the degree of force that they can use based on the behavior that they're receiving. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense to me to have all these different ones because sometimes you have to say things multiple different ways to truly get it across. Like some of the, like the couple first ones are like, are like telling someone to fish. And then afterwards, this is like, okay, this is how you fish. Um, so, you know. I, yeah. I, I, I'm not, at least in this arena, I'm not afraid of some redundancy. And then the last aspect is comprehensive reporting. Basically the idea that any time any escalation or force is used or threatened, there needs to be a full write-up afterward to justify why that was done so that it can be reviewed yeah. if need be. Police unions in the United States have been pretty resistant towards, well, a lot of things, but also um, the availability of information about police departments. So, I, you know, I remember it was in some committee or, uh, yeah, committee uh, hearing and James Comey was testifying and he was like, yeah, I don't, you know, as the head of the FBI... I can't tell you how many people were shot by police last year. Can't tell you how many bullets were fired. Can't tell you how many armed instances happened, you know, any of that stuff, because there is no reporting on these statistics and that's done on purpose um, by these police unions. Like in countries like Norway, they have statistics. I mean, they're very good statistics, but it's like no people were killed by police for 10 years or some report. It's like one bullet was shot by Norwegian police in, you know, 2017 or something. You know, <laughs> we don't even have statistics to compare that to. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice to just even know what those numbers are, but they have been deliberately, uh, obfuscated for sure now the criticism of eight can't wait has been that the statistical link has been overstated in municipalities that already have some of these there's no evidence specific evidence that adopting more of them will have an appreciable effect on police brutality and police violence and so it's very easy for opponents of this who either don't like the direction it's going or say it doesn't go too far enough to point out that there are places that chokeholds where are already banned that chokeholds were still used and that doing these things and establishing these procedures doesn't necessarily mean that they will be followed and that it will actually lead to a reduction in deaths. And I'm sympathetic to those concerns, but 
to my mind, that doesn't mean that this is necessarily bad policy. From what I'm gathering, it probably doesn't make sense to end at 8 Can't Wait, but I see it as a starting point with a lot of common sense things that, like we've been saying, probably should have happened already, that should already be on the books. Yeah, like, the whole idea of uh, these eight is that this was to provide concrete, actionable things that police departments and municipalities could implement today with no money. Um, It wasn't to be the comprehensive police reform ideal. It was just something that could be done now and without cost that seemingly is effective. And that's it's it's no more or less than that. So now let's look to a piece of legislation that is being tossed around by Congress right now. And that's the Justice in Policing Act. And this has a few more steps. And I've read the I haven't read the actual bill, but I've read the congressional summary of the bill. And I've condensed that summary here to a few main points. And the first thing that the Justice and Policing Act calls for is related to the the federalism discussion we just had, and that's to nationalize standards, to say that if you're going to receive funding from bigger public bodies, then you need to follow these national standards. And that is obviously something that I just expressed support for, and it has not changed in the last few minutes. Really? (laughs) <laughs> against I know. all the differing information <laughs> i know it was it was a roller coaster ride for those 180 seconds but i i stood tall all right <laughs> um next is to mandate training in implicit bias which unfortunately doesn't seem like it has a huge impact on police behavior or human behavior for that matter. I know that's been something that's been tossed around, but the initial evidence that I've been seeing about it has been unfortunately pessimistic in the ability for implicit bias training and sensitivity training to really reshape people's actions. Well, and I want to say something else on that is that in the United States, we just generally have a more violent police force um than i would like and that's not just conditional on uh you know the actions taken against specifically black people but i mean while those acts are heinous there are also plenty of incidences where police are very violent with white people as well They don't get as much attention because, you know, there aren't the same systemic issues with it. But if we want a more or a less violent police force overall, it doesn't track with me as much to just train them to make sure they're not as violent to some people while still being violent. But I know this is in the context of, you know, Black Lives Matter and in the context of George Floyd's death. But I also just think the police are just generally more violent than they need to be for everyone. That's true. And it's not to say that 
a lot of white people aren't killed by the police, but important to foreground the idea that it's still two and a half times more likely for a black person to be killed by police. Um, but to get back to your to the bulk of your point, which is definitely substantive, have you heard of Killology? <laughs> I, I did watch that Oliver or John Oliver. Okay, I've known about. I saw this as a speech on the speech circuit in 2018. So I'm I'm not just a, a Johnny come lately on the idea of Killology. I've been woke to this for over two years. But yeah, right. so it's it's the idea <laughs> that. Uh, There's a guy who goes around and gives speeches at police departments, uh, essentially trying to get them in a mindset, a very aggressive mindset that gets them ready to take human life. And apart from all other factors, this has contributed to the increasing violence of police forces around the nation in all circumstances. And so I would encourage everyone to look it up a bit more and it's kind of really blood curdling shit guys. Yeah. Huh? Crazy. If you prep people to kill, they may be more willing to kill. Yeah, I know. What the fuck? Yeah. It's like if you go to a seminar for something, you might be more likely to do what the seminar was talking about afterwards. Hmm. It's almost Hmm. as if hearing information changes your opinions. That's what we're in the business of, Evan. <laughs> and what a big business it is. Next big up in the, <laughs> in the Justice for Policing Act is ban of chokeholds because that, that seems to be kind of uh, jarring that that's not already done. So it's coming up in multiple places. Uh, Justice for Policing Act also addresses de-escalation and it limits the military equipment transfer which I think is so huge. It's something we talked about in our last episode. There's no reason that military-grade equipment belongs in police departments where it can be used against American citizens. That, I I don't really see the argument on the other side of it. I really don't. I've, you know, we try to consider things from all sides, and I'm trying, but it just, it, it does not compute for me. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it for, I mean, a police force is providing a, at at least the idea is that it is supposed to provide a public good, Um, you know, putting, well, not even putting a stop to, but just stopping criminals or charging people with crimes, you know, this idea that we have of justice and nowhere quite in the scope of the police is the true need for gear that, you know, is used for fighting militants. Like if it ever came to the point where military equipment would be justified to take out an uprising of some people in a in an area, I'm pretty sure some form of military would be called in. And mm-hmm. not just a police force. Yes. <laughs> because the police force, they may have the equipment, but they're not trained on it. That's not their gist. That's um, not their job. That shouldn't be their job. Yeah. There are there are levels to these things, and they don't handle everything. Like, 
there are SWAT teams for a reason because normal police officers aren't trained and you know to do that now we could go on and on about you know our SWAT teams justified but there is a division here and military style uh, you know responses are not within the per- or at least not what i believe to be within the purview of what policing is yeah I agree. And I think that what we're going to get to eventually is that a lot of this comes down to budgetary priorities. And when we're finding over $5 billion of just surplus military equipment that we decide to just ship off to local police forces, they don't necessarily need it. It's not part of their budget. It is essentially excess. And when we talk about trimming fat from budgets or reallocating money, that seems like a very obvious place to start. Yeah. Next is the insistence upon universal body cams and dash cams. And this is one that often gets a lot of debate on both sides because it sounds like a really good idea. If we can get more visual data, we can see what happens. We know that people tend to lie to make themselves look better about interactions. We've seen time and time again throughout these protests, a narrative comes out about what happens and then video evidence directly contradicts the story that is told to the public. So obviously people can turn the cameras off, but something that um, Andrew Yang was talking about on his podcast was the idea that if we make it so that, you know, it's, it's kind of like if, if you pull someone over and they refuse a sobriety ch- test, you treat it as a failed test. If someone is accused of misconduct and doesn't have body cam footage, you treat that as a violation and they are disciplined for that. Will it actually stop violence? That's difficult to say. And this is, really is all about stopping violence and the murder of American citizens. So body cams to me seems like something that is worth requiring while understanding the limitations of it. Yeah. The body camera thing seems less preventative now. Like when they were first coming out, there was this idea that, Oh, police officers won't do this if they're on camera. And it turns out they will, but over and over uh, again, they will. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I do like that idea from Andrew Yang because I've thought of that before in like uh, police interrogations. Like if the entire interrogation or interview is not recorded, then it would be null and void because you can coax people into a narrative that they, quote, confess to over the course of hours and hours and hours but then just finally record the last little bit. Like that's Mm -hmm. what you started off with. So I always thought that it would be good to require that an entire interview or interrogation is required or recorded in its entirety for it to be valid. And then you start getting into, well, what if the recording stops or this or that? And it's like, well, you better just make sure that it all works out. Yeah. We have the the capabilities to do it. 
yeah, you'll you'll invest a little bit more money into making sure that people's civil liberties aren't denied by having these recording devices available mm-hmm. and working at all times. Yeah. So like if a police officer, you know, turns off his body cam when he goes and does something like if. Yeah, that should be disciplinary action or, you know, it, you know, if it's the case is less serious enough, maybe void the case, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, there just needs to be some alignment of incentives here. Yeah, it's it could be a situation where, you know, it's a new form of Miranda rights. We make it and again, this would need to be legislated. Ooh, I don't think that this I is like that. inherent. Yeah, but, you know, you you have a right to hear what rights you have and if we chose to we could agree that it's also valuable that you have a right to body cam footage of your interaction be recorded yeah because there are sometimes uh we you know believe your rights should be read to you of what they are which is you know it's also weird now that we're like in a different era that um you know, I really wonder if people ever are just learning about what their rights are when listening to that little speech that they give of the Miranda rights. But it's something we still believe in. And, you know, I, you know, if I question, you know, whether people are actually learning about it from then, I still think it should be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Next gets to the idea of qualified immunity. And basically, they think it needs to be, and the Justice and Policing Act calls for it to be easier to hold police officers who use deadly force or force of any kind civilly liable. The legislation of the Justice and Policing Act would make it easier to sue police officers. The implication being that you can get justice if misconduct is done, and also that if officers know that they will be held civilly liable, they won't hopefully do the same types of illegal behaviors. I mean, quite frankly, I would more be, um, more have them solved it within the criminal system than the civil system. Like it, it is, you know, I understand the idea, but it's like, uh, you know, yet you maybe sue the guy, but then the guy's only going to have whatever his salary is to give up. So you're not going to receive a whole lot in damages. Well, Um, there is, um, something that will come up later about liability insurance, um, which has been proposed as a solution, but that's that, we'll get to that eventually. I think one of the things about the distinction between criminal criminal and civil is the burden of proof. Criminal yeah. needs the beyond a reasonable yeah. doubt standard, whereas civil cases are just decided on the basis of preponderance of evidence. You need to be beyond a reasonable doubt sure to get someone convicted of a crime, but to be held responsible in a civil court, you just need to have a 51% certainty. Remember that when OJ Simpson was acquitted, he was sued by, I think the family of Ron Goldman and they won the, the civil court decided, yeah, it's more likely than not that you are responsible for this death. So I do kind of like having that option open 
because I do think that the beyond a reasonable doubt standard is really vital to protect for criminal cases, but in other cases where you can't meet that specific legal standard, but you can still hit the preponderance of evidence standard, I like that there's that other avenue. Now, I always thought beyond a reasonable doubt was a level of scrutiny specific to murder trials, but is it for all criminal proceedings? You know, I I guess I had always assumed that it was, but now that you're questioning it, I don't have a strong reason why. We'll have to look that up eventually. Yeah. Because... Yeah, I always thought it was mostly for murders where if you have other crimes, um, the burden of proof is a whole lot less um, because and, you know, I mean, but the the main issue that we are discussing or trying to prevent is loss of life or murder, depending on how you want to frame it. So that burden of proof would still be necessary. That burden of proof is still needed in George Floyd's trial um, or the, you know, the trial of the people who killed George Floyd. So, okay. I looked this up real quick and I'm not saying that I am speaking with a whole lot of confidence or validity here, but the definitions that I'm pulling up here about reasonable doubt just say crime. They don't say murder. So I think reasonable doubt is the universal standard. Okay. I guess maybe it just gets toted around a whole lot more in murder because um, they really want, you know, like make sure jurors think, you know, understand that. Yeah. I think we have it associated with murder a lot too, because that's what the, the true crime world is traffics in, you know, there's not there's making a murderer there's not <laughs> ma- making a car thief you know there's just not as much stakes when it's something about property or procedural violation or making a you know a petty trading yeah exactly so i think that's probably where the the distinction or not the distinction but the association comes in mm-hmm. the next part of the justice for policing act is public safety grants to help facilitate this and i know that this is going to be a huge sticking point for a lot of people who are engaged in calls to defund the police. And that's sort of one of the central battles is do police need more resources to implement reforms or do we just shrink the role of police entirely so that we lessen the damage that the system causes? And like I said, I really didn't have a lot of knowledge on this before, but from what I'm listening and what I'm reading, I'm kind of starting to lean towards that latter idea. Yeah. Um, the, the defund the police has several different flavors. And if it turns out that at least for me, the flavor is, well, the police should have a reduced role in how they interact with society by taking or creating and funding other institutions that take some of the responsibility that they currently hold and push it onto them and reducing the role of policing as a first responder to everything, then I can get behind that. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't know. Well, the kind of the concerns are, you know, what's going to happen about 
more serious crimes. And again, this sort of gets into definitional issues and a lack of clarity in wording because I've often been disappointed by answers that I hear to that question because, at least for me, I want confidence that if someone commits a violent crime, there will still be someone who, at least in theory, can come and stop that or investigate it. So I think that... Yeah, to the best of our societal ability to get someone to bring justice for that. Yeah, I still believe in that as a societal ideal. I know that in the status quo, we are very far from that with the current system of policing, but I still think that that should be something we try for. Yeah. Uh, You know, um, there is... I definitely believe in the role of policing, but I do believe that there are many instances where it's abused and or it's not as effective as it could be. But as of right now, we task the police with a large number of responsibilities that they're not necessarily able to equip to deal with or should really deal with. Um, So at least in the police, they have the role of people who um, are armed almost universally in the United States and can, you know, respond to threats um, felt by the community. But they're also tasked with a whole bunch of menial things that kind of make it more complicated on how to use force and all that stuff like. So in the George Floyd case, they're responding to a possibly counterfeit bill. That's what they were called in to respond to. I don't know necessarily know if we need to send armed officers to go and deal with that issue. Um, But then there's a whole host of other things that the police do. Like they, they respond to domestic disturbances. They respond to kids being rowdy in school they can sometimes respond to kids just not going to school so they can uh respond to people who are out in public and are mentally ill and are causing a disturbance they make reports on stolen things like um you know just uh, to get insurance on something being stolen you oftentimes have to get a re- police report and you're sending an armed officer out to go and do that. And I don't think that necessarily needs to be a case. There should be other institutions and people who can go out and deal with some of these other issues that, I mean, uh, aren't isn't an armed officer. Yeah, I agree with that. Makes a lot of sense. And because there are definitely there are definitely roles where an armed officer is needed, especially in a country such as ours that is so armed to begin with, like um, in the past, before kind of the whole never ending culture war started, gun control used to be an issue championed by police because it meant that there were fewer weapons out there for criminals to have to fight them against with. But, um, you know, kind of the culture war happened and, you know, a lot of police officers tend to be on the side of the people who want more gun rights. But, you know, for an armed officer, I mean, it really is kind of a dangerous world out there with the number of guns. You never know if someone's just going to 
um, take a gun and start shooting you. But then what we're also learning, you know, which is a valid fear, but then the whole kind of debate is that people have, there are certain segments of the community that also have the equal fear that the police will just start firing on them or kill them out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And that's where the real issue is. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're trying to solve right here. Like uh, there was the case, I forget what his name was, but there was a man in Atlanta who was shot in his car because he was sleeping in his car at a Wendy's. Okay, I do want to clarify because um, that's not really the whole story. What happened was this guy, I don't remember his name, he was asleep in his car in the Wendy's drive through and so the police were called and they had a there were two officers who responded and they were talking to this guy and everything was very normal, very calm, but they began to pick up on the fact that he was probably inebriated. So they performed a field sobriety test, which he failed. And then they gave him a breathalyzer, which he failed. And so they were at that point ready to arrest him for a DUI or a DWI, whatever it is in Georgia. And at that point he began resisting arrest Eventually, it culminated in him stealing an officer's taser, at which point he was shot. So still not great. Yeah. 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 But he he was out of the car and, you know, he he wasn't just asleep and killed like Breonna Taylor was. Yeah. Okay. Um, But it is a. It is a tough gig. And all all parts of it, but just trying to reduce the amount of burden that these officers have to go through is a big thing. But then I also think about, um, you know, kind of the scope of what they do. Um, you know, there's a fair number of these issues where, uh, you know, kind of the racial biases come in where it's you know, because of a, tr- you know, a minor traffic stop. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, um, you know, the idea of a charity for uh, something, you know, for to help people with like a broken taillight so it doesn't become a, a big, you know, financial burden on them. But I'm just thinking, well, what if we just, you know, some of those things uh, the police have decided through I think there may have been some study or something that you know if they can stop these people who have these minor offenses maybe that'll stop bigger offenses and I don't know yeah, if that's broken true. windows yeah I mean and it kind of an extension of that but you know what it you know there are a lot of things that you know the police pull people over and I'm sure we've either been someone or know someone who's been pulled over for you know, something that just kind of feels like BS or, you know, shouldn't be too much of an issue, like a broken taillight or my car keeps telling me my license plate light is out, even though it's not. Um, or like a headlight or a failure to uh, use your turn signal at some point or running a stop a stoplight. And my thought was, well, what if, you know, those are all things that are bad and, you know, there is an active um, reason why the community would want to put a stop to those for public safety reasons. Well, what if we took uh, like that and maybe like a whole slew of other minor offenses that 
people have small interactions with the police about. And what if it was that your first instance of it, you got a warning and then, you know, you had a, you know, let's say it's like a, you know, a broken taillight again. It's the one that I keep coming back to again, you know, something that people reasonably can have an issue without uh, being malicious about it. Then you, then you're given like 48 hours where you can't be ticketed again to get it fixed. And then after that 48 hours, if it's still not fixed, you get a ticket and that like warning stays on your record for a year in order to not just abuse the system. But then after that, it is taken off. And for different crimes, it could be a different length of time. But that would just make it so that we can still ensure the public trust and, you know, ensure public safety without just fining people and arresting people and escalating everything to the same level that we do currently. Yeah, I like that idea. I think that kind of the ingredient that I would add is that the forces that are out there writing traffic tickets are not armed. You know, it's a an entity that doesn't have the ability to escalate conflict to violence just because they mistake a hairbrush for a gun, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's also, it, it you know, in the modern incantation of American police, it just seems kind of weird that the same guy who can pull you over for speeding is also the guy who will take part in, like, a murder investigation. Yeah. Like... Like, that's such a wide scope that it's hard to believe that they'll be able to do, like, either too effectively. Yeah. Not to say we need super effective traffic cops, but (laughs) um, it's it's just kind of the scope of what they're policing is rather large. Yeah, and, you know, when everything else in this country seems to be getting more and more specialized it seems like we keep adding tasks to police officers plates and that doesn't make sense for anybody yeah like you know in the past you know before before defund police you know i was thinking you know i i'm real big into true crime and in the united states we actually have a pretty low murder clearance rate Mm -hmm. uh for you know, murders getting solved essentially and getting prosecuted. We have a really low percentage. Um, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what the percentage is, but it's far from a hundred percent. And I definitely believe that there is a real societal benefit to solving more murders and police departments are also tracked with catching speeders so I really wish there was more resources for catching murderers to be able to solve those, more policing resources to be able to go in and figure those out, and not so much the kind of trivial broken windows stuff that they do. Yeah. Um, because I believe it is a real societal good to get murderers out of society, at least briefly. Um. All right, here's the here's the stat. 
Clearance rate, U.S. 2018 for murder and manslaughter, 62.3%. That means better than one in three murders does not get solved. Yeah. And remember, clearance, I believe, is just that they arrest somebody. That doesn't even factor convictions into it. That's just making sure that you've arrested and charged somebody, whether or not the conviction sticks. So, right. you know, that's, yeah, that's rough. That's that's too low. If, you've, if I mean, you have a one in three shot of getting away with murder, we can, we can do better. Yeah, or, you know, other serious crimes like rape, you know. Yeah, they're definitely, I, and, and I should add. A, go ahead. Oh, just that uh, the chart that I just looked at had a whole range of violent crimes and murder had the highest clearance rate out of yes. any of them. <laughs> yes. So we're doing even worse at other things. Oh, yeah. I mean, most property crimes... Um, you have pretty much no hope of getting your stuff back unless the person is stupid and they take it to a pawn shop. Um, <laughs> even then, you have to have like the, you know, whatever code is on it or, you know, identification number. But um, but yeah, if we were able to solve like more rapes um, and, you know, part of that is these police departments have to take them more seriously, but then also yes. just more, uh, more resources to be able to deal with it, um, is also part of it. So there is definitely a part of me that is very hesitant to the idea of defund the police, but then there's also part of me that kind of takes the uh, seriously but not literally stance where I understand the idea that the scope of policing should be toned down, at least in the United States, and that other uh, entities should respond to a greater number of uh, societal issues where someone needs to be called in that isn't necessarily for the police. Yes. And I think we can have a fuller, more robust discussion of that coming up. I do want to just finish off the last couple of things in the Justice and Policing Act that's been proposed. One is to collect data on the use of force, creating yes. a registry just like the eight can't wait, and also to make lynching a federal crime. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that, Joe, because I know that that's been a, kind of an area of study for you. You visited the lynching museum. What do you What do you think about that? It should be a crime. It should be a federal crime um, because it's definitely been shown that states can't handle this on their own. Um, and especially from what we, uh, you know, there are some reports that there have been two black men found hanging in California, not too far away from each other. So it's lynching, been up to five nationwide. Yeah, that's been very yeah. concerning lynching is not gone and it is a heinous heinous hate crime and even when local authorities take it seriously in the past um, even if it's gone to trial they uh, through jury selection stack people who are amenable to the cause and essentially uh, you know jury nullification where they all decide, you know, this is on trial, but, you know, what the person did was all right. 
and the you know the perpetrators get away free um so local justice has not been able to be administered for these crimes and i definitely believe that it is within or it could be within the scope of the federal government to be the ones who charge lynchings as a crime. I agree, 100%. So now we get into the uh, sort of culmination, these more nebulous activist calls for things that are farther from the mainstream than what's already been proposed. And the biggest part of this is to, some people call it police abolition or police defunding, but the general idea is to dramatically reshape the role of policing in our society, to reallocate funds from bloated police budgets into areas, like Joseph was saying, establishing other institutions, people who can respond to mental health crises, people who can respond to traffic violations, things that really don't require escalation of force. I do think there's been this debate going on about people being afraid of the phrase police abolition and then people firing back saying it's not activists' job to means, or not means test, but uh, focus group test their slogans and their headings. (laughs) But I gotta say... Your goal is, what's the goal of an activist? It's to make someone reconsider their position, to bring about change. And if you have a title for something where that title intrinsically is turning people off, you should probably change the title. And, you know, I don't think police abolition in this current form is really that bad of a title. But to say, well, you should educate yourself, I think is a little disingenuous i think we need people to explain things and having clear signposting helps for example if my idea was called the legalized rape and murder plan and then i said no 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 don't worry don't worry about the title it really just means to uh increase the corporate gains tax that would be on me right and this isn't that bad this isn't that extreme but i think that we still have to pay attention to language and how we talk about things Oh yeah. Talk to our talk to the boy Frank Luntz about that. That's all he's about. <laughs> um your messaging is as powerful as what the message actually is. Um you know, there's a reason why you know the defund kind of slogan prefix if you could call it that is a powerful one because Normally, what happens in a defund, you know, a call to defund something is to just get rid of it wholesale, not a couched nuance like take on things. Like when people say defund Planned Parenthood, they mean they want to get rid of Planned Parenthood and they may not be able to outright do it, but they want to take away all their money. Mm-hmm. Um, from being able to do things and um, yeah, message, you know, there, while other messaging like reform the police or whatever, um, you know, there is some pushback that one, it's not as effective as uh, marketing and two, 
it is not as clear where you know progress could happen but it's not to the fullest extent and you can just say about anything as police reform that's actually what it would be um because as far right now only it seems about 16% of people approve of defund the police now who knows maybe this will come back and be a whole thing where we're uh, some shitlords for not understanding the full power of defund the police movement but as far as it seems right now police are very popular for the most part not in this moment for what is going on but in for most Americans in their day-to-day life there is a trust of the police now the issue is that some communities can't trust them and there are heinous acts being happening that are happening against you know certain populations mostly the black community but even within the black community there is still strong support for the police it is nuanced because they they do hate the you know kind of bullshit you know uh tit for tat harassing of you know pulling people over for minute things and you know showing you know pulling someone over and then all of a sudden 10 cops are hanging around the pulled over car but they also there is a societal function of catching bad guys and trying to solve murders that is also very important um yeah yeah and that's kind of and again i am very open if people want to send me literature or perspectives i i am learning so much right now and my opinion is still very malleable but how i kind of feel about it is let's focus on what we actually want the role of police to be do I care if someone does a rolling stop at a stop sign? No. Do I care about bringing up our murder clearance rate? Do I still want violent people to be apprehended and brought to justice? Yes. So we can refocus police energies and police budgets to a variety of services that really can serve the needs of our communities in a more streamlined way. Yeah. And we could be accused of bad faith for not fully uh, getting behind whatever X's proposal for or definition of defund the police is. But currently in its current form, defund the police can mean anything from not giving them the military gear from the federal government all the way to a full stop abolition of policing activities. Um, So there is a wide breadth of what it can mean currently. Yeah, there's, there's definitely an element of it being a big tent that the definitions are falling under. So hopefully we can continue to refine our use of language. But as of right now, like Joe was saying, there's there's a bit of unpopularity here, but I'm not I'm not afraid of the phrase police abolition, I guess is what I'm saying. Not I, that I'm I, accusing anyone else of being, but Yeah, I I I think I don't like the idea of police abolition because to me when I think of abolition, I think a total riddance of it, and I don't believe that to be the case. But 
I I am for a lot of things that people are proposing, a lot of reforms and changes to how policing happens, while I may just not agree on the specific verbiage of how to describe it as a collective. Of course, the response here being that you can institute all the reforms you want, but the system was established in a broken manner. It's unfair to even call it broken because it's doing what it was established to do to incarcerate and control communities of color. And so on that reasoning, abolition is the only thing that makes sense. So it's just, again, it's that, another it's but another. But is that advocating for a world without police? Because there are countries with homogenous populations that don't have the same history of racism that we have that still have police. True. Um, and it's, you know, it's, uh, as I've said, I am, I am fully aware of the fungibility of the language being used. I, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to take a real hard line here, just throwing out the idea, the common response. And I just want to be like, hey, I'm about all that you say, except for the the verbiage. (laughs) Not even you, but like. No, I get you. The royal you. I understand. Yeah, the royal you. Yeah. So then the other thing that I want to talk about in terms of these broader activist calls is a change in how we handle liability. There's been calls either for police settlements to come out of police pension funds and use that as a motivating factor or, as I hinted at earlier, require police officers to carry personal liability insurance. Doctors have malpractice insurance. Other people are required to carry their own personal insurance. This isn't a completely unprecedented proposal. It's just that we've never seen it applied to police officers in this way. Oh, yeah. Police officers would probably have to really change their act in order to uh, <laughs> for anyone to insure an individual police officer, um, that's taking on a big liability. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I do understand, I think it should come to the individual officer to carry something like that, because while I can understand trying to make police departments accountable, we did see something, uh, about two decades ago where, I mean, in the kind of sphere of holding public institutions accountable through finance, where we took, um, there was no child left behind, where school funding was directly related to performance on standardized tests, where it ended up being that uh, nobody, or schools who performed worse got fewer resources to, teach kids and you know uh, places that were already doing better got to have more resources so if it comes down to you make the police pensions uh you know that's where the liability money comes from you could run into a situation where there's just like a police department where maybe in the early days there were some people who were really bad and did some really heinous things Um, And then for years and years and years, the fund becomes, uh, you know, uh, not able to keep up. It's not fully funded. Then they're having to take more money out of the police department to fund the pension. And then, you know, there not be enough funding for things. 
for people years and years down the road and not just the people who it happened to. So just a thought on that. Sure. Because because making institutions within government that we kind of expect to go on for forever, it seems weird to impose financial uh, uh, fines or burdens because of poor performance. It's just something I don't quite believe in. So that's well, as long as the liability is shifted away from the taxpayer dollar, that's kind of what yeah. I am hopeful for. But again, maybe if we can, if, if we reduce the scope of policing and we reduce the situations in which armed officers are interacting with unarmed civilians, maybe this will not be the most pressing need at all. That's the hope. If we reconceptualize and build a stronger institution from the ground up with appropriate budget allocation, hopefully some of these ancillary problems will become moot. Yeah. And, you know, whether it creates a more just system or not, I it would be very weird for me to think that a police officer is in a situation and he's thinking about pensions um that just seems something odd to me well i think maybe the point of the pensions isn't necessarily that an officer who's in a deadly force situation will think ah gosh this is going to affect my pension but that it will have a a dynamic where it shifts police culture towards uh, away from tolerating these types of acts you know a guy like Derek Chauvin, who has 18 prior counts of misconduct, won't be a training officer, won't even still be on the force that these people will get edged out over time. Yeah, I I understand what the intended effect is. I'm just kind of spitballing of what could also happen. Sure. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. The the biggest thing that is potentially coming from the White House is that tomorrow President Trump is expected to announce an executive order and it is <laughs> much easier to summarize than any of the things that we've talked about before so I'll do so quickly I know that we're already going pretty pretty long on time uh, but the first is to acknowledge an abuse of force that has caused communities to have a lack of trust in the police and i think that this is both sort of a really phenomenally big step forward and also somewhat inadequate because to admit fault on the on law enforcement is more than i ever thought that we would have gotten out of this administration but at the same time it's worded or at least is reported to be worded in a way that will focus on certain actors instead of systemic issues that are more widespread so yin and yang yeah um progress is progress but um uh (laughs) yeah just even you know what and the police want the community to i mean at least uh police officers who want you know, are dedicated to the duty of solving crimes and protecting the community. 
the community needs to trust the police to also be effective. Like the police needs their trust to be able to effectively do their job. So I feel like there's a whole, there could be a whole host of win-win scenarios in this. But since it, you know, we're in the culture wars, um, it's treated as zero sum instead of a uh, positive sum game. Mm-hmm. The next part of the projected Trump executive order. Uh, which again is expected to be announced on Tuesday, so perhaps the day that you are listening to this, or maybe it's already happened, or maybe things got completely fucky and it didn't come out at all. But the next projected part is that the executive order will nationalize standards for accreditation. And this is something that's come up over and over again, and I, I think it's pretty interesting that this is coming up in a potential executive order because uh, I think it's something that needs to occur. Yeah, um, yeah, that'd be interesting. I, do, does it uh, list what the changes to the uh, rules for accreditation are? Presumably it will in the actual executive order right now. You know, there's just certain leaks and we've just gotten, at least what I read only had the broad stroke. So I, oh, okay. well, again, you know, it's a Trump EO, so who knows if it'll actually make any sense, but uh, presumably there will be specifics, but I don't know. Yeah, right yeah, to be a police force, your pun- pension must have own Trump uh, <laughs> uh, time leases or something like that. <laughs> Uh, The next thing that it calls for is the creation of a police misconduct database. So again, something that has come up in bipartisan calls for reform. Then his last couple of uh, aspects are more procedural, directing both the Department of Health and Human Services and the Congress to do more. And... If this is how it ends up shaking out, I think that there is some limited good things that will happen, but uh, (laughs) it's not really close to everything that we need. And again, this kind of comes down to how you feel about incrementalism. I think that in terms of my expectations, it exceeded my expectations about what we would get from a Donald Trump White House, but at the same time... Is, is that all he's got? Is that really going to address the scope of the intersection between racism and police brutality in this country? No fucking way. Yeah. Well, you know, in some ways, I got to say, I, I wouldn't expect even this much from someone in a who in a rally in front of police officers explicitly told them that he thinks that they need to be more violent. Yeah. Um. So we'll see. Um, There's a lot of work that needs to be done. And these are just ideas. Obviously, the the best ideas have not even been thought of yet. So um, it's important to remember that this is not an exhaustive list or even a selection of the best list of ideas for how to stop police brutality within our system, but these are the ideas that are out there being debated by activists and lawmakers and I think are worthy of our consideration today. Yeah. Um, You know, there are sometimes the critique that, you know, 
man, we're always just, uh, you know, and when I say we, I mean more like kind of liberals, but always finding something wrong with society and with just so many things got to fix. Isn't anything going right? And it's like, well, I mean, it works to a degree, but we could always do better. And there seem to be some things that are really not lining up with our values now and mm-hmm. that we want to see changed. Yeah. Um, because no institution is set in stone. Everything that our public institutions do is not like some force of nature. We had to make a choice at some point about what we did, and we want to make a different choice. Yeah. Like it, policing doesn't inherently have to be what it is now. Um, but it's, you know, as a society, we've chosen to let it be like this. So. Yeah, and we can choose to change it, and I hope that we do in in some capacity, hopefully a very large and meaningfully changed capacity. Yeah, but then we also get to the point where often, and I don't think there's going to be a big federal usurping of local power on this, but, you know, it's going to come down to local you know, local municipalities deciding what, how to respond to this. And while I'm, I am not a current practicer of what I'm about to preach, but if you go to town meetings and can, you know, see the city council or go to these meetings where they talk about police and fire departments, if you go and express opinion, you can do, it, it means a lot. Um, not too many people go to these things. And if you go and are routinely make your voice heard, you have the ability to affect change in a very real way, just as a citizen. Yeah. Uh, local action is, it's very important. And I especially want to say that if you're out there protesting and pushing for that change on a local level, that is really admirable. Don't let up. Don't take your foot off the gas right now. Uh, continue to push. Nothing has really been changed yet, so keep it up. I mean, there have been some changes, but not nearly to the degree that we would like. Yeah, not not nothing that's going to make a dent. I mean, you know, first steps are great. I'm not trying to say that... Uh, only the biggest idea is meaningful. I mean, but... hell, I mean, Minneapolis is disbanding its its police department, um, yeah, and going to be re uh, reconstituting it under the county. At least, I think that's the idea. That's what they did in Camden, New Jersey, years ago. Um, you know, to bring it and what they did in Camden, New Jersey, you know, they had a big police violence problem. They just they disbanded the local police and reconstituted it at the county level. I think that, you know, all the police officers became sheriffs, but they, you know, came back and they did it in a better way. They made sure that the culture was right. Uh, you know, re-interviewed every officer to make sure that you know, that they were worth something and they saw dramatic reductions in police violence and just violence in the community in general. Um, because there is some point that if the police are less violent, then 
there will just kind of be less violence in general because a fair amount of violence is standing up to the police, at least as some people do it. Um, so there is a possibility to recruit, uh, you know, reduce violence in a society by having the police lead the way essentially. So. Well, that's, that's one approach. There's a number of approaches, some of which we've discussed here. Not all of them. I've got about another full page of notes and material, but I would say that we have a full episode. Yeah. So um, I think that we are going to call it here, if that is all right with the esteemed Joe. Oh, yes, sir. I just have a few parting words, not a formal end segment so much, but um, I would like to say this from the bottom of my heart. Uh, stop the memes, guys. Like, they're, they're mostly very stupid. And I think that there's a way to have discourse if you want to post a, a, a well-reasoned uh, personal opinion or a thought-provoking article but I'm I'm sick of seeing your memes. I don't think I don't think memes really move the needle here, guys. Are you responding to the one guy in those comments who definitely did not listen to the podcast? Oh, him and also uh just, you know, people who are uh liberal activists as well. Like I just okay. ge- I just generally think that you know, me- memes are cool and all, but if that's if you're Gosh, I'm sounding like such a boomer here. But if if your if your best tool to try to achieve social justice and social equity involves SpongeBob, you're you're off the mark there, bud. Clever dunks don't win people over. Correct, exactly. And they just you know they clog up my feed. Spend the energy you know reading reading good research, reading articles sharing and, and having a discussion maybe i'm asking too much of social media i'm i'm such a prick sometimes i'll admit it um but that is what it comes down to that's my that's my hot take that's my opinion oh you're gonna get canceled oh you're not a- you're not adequately dedicated to the cause because you didn't like that one meme <laughs> that was all the eggs were in that basket evan that was the call. That was the the shot. That was the the golden ticket. Ah, uh, I failed the one test that mattered. Yeah, apparently. Apparently. Yeah. So I think that's our episode. Uh, well, thank you for listening, Evan. Any final final words? Thank you again to those of you who are out there doing the important work to push this country towards a fairer, more just, more inclusive ideal. Thank you. Don't stop. Yeah. So, on that note, uh, thank you again. Uh, thank Anthony Hish for the music. And uh, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. We hope that you've been adequately informed.